Edwina Johnson, Director of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to a podcast of the session Reflecting on Fathers, featuring John Birmingham, Hung Lee and Carol Llewellyn in conversation with Sunil Badami, recorded live at the 2019 Byron Writers Festival. For more information about the festival, please visit byronwritersfestival.com. Well, mother's milk, our mother tongue, the motherland. We make all sorts of motherhood statements and, and statements about motherhood. But what about that other crucial person in or out of our lives? Our fathers. For our guests this morning, their fathers were equally powerful influences on them psychologically, emotionally and artistically. As St Ignatius Loyola once said, famously said, give me the child and I'll show you the man. But how do those men in our childhood, our dads, how do they shape who we become? What does it mean to be a father? And what can fathers mean to us? Carol Llewellyn, John Birmingham and Hung Lee have all written movingly and affectingly about their fathers and their relationships to them. And I'm sure as, well, many of us have fathers, we'll all have lots to share. Now, it gives me very great pleasure to introduce our guest this morning. Carol Llewellyn is the author of three previous books of nonfiction. She's the former director of several large-scale literary festivals and cultural events, hosting writers from around the world at the Sydney Opera House, London South Bank, the Louvre, and New York's Metropolitan Museum of Art, Town Hall, 92Y, and Historic Cooper Union. She's currently a director at Museums Victoria, and Diving Into Glass is her first work of autobiography. Ladies and gentlemen, Carol Wellen. John Birmingham wrote features for magazines in a decade before publishing He Died with a Falafel in His Hand, working for Rolling Stone, Playboy and the Long Bay Prison News, among others. <laughs> the centrefolds must have been intriguing. <laughs> he won the National Award for Nonfiction with Leviathan, an unauthorised biography of Sydney. His most recent series of books that improve with altitude are the Girl in Time novels, he published On Father with Melbourne University Press in April this year. He blogs at thecheeseburgergothic.com and can be found on Twitter as at John Birmingham, hashtag ByronWF2019. Ladies and gentlemen, John Birmingham. Yeah. Hung Lee is a violinist turned comedian who first made his mark in 1987 as the winner of Hey Hey It's Saturday's Red Faces. Woo! <laughs> Since then, he's appeared at numerous comedy festivals and venues around the world, made documentaries for the ABC, SBS and Discovery Channel and appeared in films <coughs> including The Wog Boy, Fat Pizza and Broken Hill. And his memoir, The Crappiest Refugee, was published by a firm press last year. Ladies and gentlemen, Hung Lee! Please welcome all our guests, Caro, John and Hung. So, I guess to start, you know, why do you think fathers are such powerful presences and influences on our lives? Do you think, Caro? 
Um, I think that they, I think it varies for people. I think either the presence of a father can be very powerful or the absence of a father can be very powerful. Um, I had a little bit of both. Um, my father was very present until I was about six um, and present in a way that without preempting the conversation that we're going to have, but um, he was very present because he was 95% disabled and he, so he couldn't move away from me. <laughs> he was trapped. Um, and... Uh, but 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 then he was very absent from my life, and I've watched my son, who whose father has been very absent, and I think it's a hole that is very hard to fill. I think as much love as a mother has, it's like a well that you can never kind of fill up because I think only that person can fill that hole. I think, um, but yes, so both. What about you, Hung? I mean, you had, a, a, I guess, a, a pretty close relationship to your dad and you, you did admire your dad, but there was always a piece of your dad that was kind of missing. That It was his life in Vietnam. You mentioned earlier that he, he didn't really talk to you about the things that happened or, you know... <laughs> the rising in... Where's the inflection? <laughs> <laughs> See, that's what you can't do. Wait up. Please comment. <laughs> What's the question? <laughs> so, I mean, we talk about the presence of fathers yeah. and the influence of fathers, whether they're present or absent. Your dad was a big part of your life, but there was a part of his life that you didn't really get to know. How did that affect your view of your dad, especially when you found out those things that he hadn't told you? Yeah, well, you know, my father never told us very much about it. He's, his side of the family. We, we, we were more on mum's side of the family. And, um, and dad, yeah, he was really poor when he was growing up and he became a great artist, but, you know, he didn't really wanted to talk about how poor he was and, and where he lived and how he grew up and stuff like that. So, um, so yeah, when he died, I went back to Vietnam and uh, I found his family. I found his side of the family, and um, and I talked to his brother, and you know, I, I, I just found these people in the middle of the village. It's amazing. Anyway, so um, yeah, I, yeah, I, I talked to his brother, and he told me all about you know, my, they were so poor that the, how he started doing art was that they would hang it, they, they would catch eels to eat by the river. And while he's there, he was getting all the mud and he was, making, he was making boats that he saw and that's how he started all his art. And I never knew any of this. So, yeah, I went back and found all that out. You know. I mean, before your dad died, John, he revealed a secret to you, didn't he, about his past? It wasn't much of a secret. He, uh, he would, when he was in palliative care at the end, um, I had just come in from a, a jiu-jitsu class and uh, he... He just, out of nowhere, just said, I used to box, you know, which was just a stunning surprise because my father was a gentle man. Like, I, he, you know, he didn't ever raise a hand against my brother or I. He rarely raised his voice. You just, you know, you knew what he wanted and it was generally the right thing, so you, you did it. And he, uh, yeah, he, that... That came out of left field for me, and I just, you know, one of my regrets now is that I, I didn't get a chance to, to talk to him much about that. Because to go back to your your actual question, um, one of the things that, that fathers are important for, I think, is uh, example. You know, they they provide an example, and and I, I suspect it's a different example depending on whether it's a, a daughter or, or a son that they're they're raising like you know the uh, 
the direct example uh, Dad provided to me was you know, basically how to be good. Uh, and there's a, a piece in here, it's, it's stuck with me 20 years later on, when uh, about the mid-1970s when punk rock was you know, destroying the world. I, I recall him sitting in front of Today Tonight you know, in front of our big black and white TV and there's some dude in a like, safari suit going on about, you know, how punk was destroying the world and they cut away to Sid Vicious and, you know, they actually looked like he was an imminent <laughs> threat to civilization. And, and Dad's sitting there in his boiler suit nursing his Carlton draft and he just turned to me and said, son, one of the biggest mistakes you can make about anybody is to judge them by how they look. And then he just went back to his beer. And... <laughs> And that just stayed with me forever. Tell me, Caro, how did your dad influence you by his example? I'm quite directional. My father was always telling us how to do things properly because he couldn't move. Um, So uh, the story of my dad was he was 20 years old when he contracted polio and he was a Navy man and he was out at sea. And anyway, he ended up in an iron lung for a year. And so all he had was his words. So I think I got my, this is a photo of my father before he got polio. And it's actually really hard for me to look at this photograph because I never, obviously I never knew him like that. Um, And it's hard for me even to believe that at one point in his life he could stand up and he was tall and strong and all of those things. Um, But uh, I think he taught me, I think he taught me a great love of language because All he had was words and they had to be very precise. You know, if you have a small child who's heading for the highway, literally, um, and all you can do is use your language to stop them, you can't run and pick them up and save them and capture them. You have to be very, very, very direct. And so I find myself often having conversations with people and getting very frustrated because I think that the words they use are not absolutely correct. So I'm a bit of a... I was called the other day by my partner a word Nazi, but (laughs) um, I think that has become very, that's obviously very important to me and I've built a life working with with writers and who care about words. And so language is very important to me. I think I learned that from dad. But I also learned um, a great, uh, I think, a spirit of saying yes to as much as you possibly can in life because at a certain point, his life was stopped with many no's, but he never let any of those really stop him completely. He kept going. But just the importance of being open and being tenacious and resilient and kind of bloody-minded. Now, you joke a lot about the expectations of Asian parents for their children. I know that my Indian mother's only wish for me was to become a doctor who married a doctor who put our sons through medical school. So how did your dad, who'd followed his own artistic dreams and and was such an important artist in Vietnam and was then kind of forced to abandon his artistic career in Australia, how did he respond to your choice of an unorthodox career? What do you mean unorthodox? Um, (laughs) Well, you know, when when, when we got to Australia, my dad made all the kids play um, classical instruments because, you know, he said, look, you know, you're in white man's world now and you've got to play white man's music. So so that, that's all the age. We all we all played the violin and the piano. We're not allowed to play anything else. And because, uh, you know, we're Asian, we've got ten fingers and that's the law. And um, 
<laughs> and uh, what's the question? <laughs> How did he respond to you, you know, ah. be wanting to become a uh, comedian as opposed to a right. classical violinist okay. or a dermatologist? Yeah. <laughs> Well, when I was about 15, I realised I wasn't going to be a, a, a concert violinist. And I knew straight away because, you know, you see all these kids on TV and they're like seven years old and they're playing with the London Philharmonic. I'm going, oh, there's no way I'm going to be that like that. And I couldn't really play in tune. I played like... <laughs> I really couldn't. I, I, play, I play sharp. It's a little bit sharp and it's just really annoying to people. And so, oh, man, what do I do? So, so, so I, me and my mate, we were 15, we took my violins out to uh, Little Burke Street, uh, to Burke Street uh, for, for Christmas. You know, Burke Street, I got the Maya windows for Christmas. And we started playing, you know, Christmas carols and stuff. And we got heaps of money. We got so, in the 80s, people had money, you know. And so, um, <laughs> and I think they thought it was hilarious because they've never seen an Asian play out of tune before, you know. And, <laughs> And this is true, man, you know, we're being serious. But then that's when I thought, oh, man, I can do comedy, classical music out of this. And, um, and my dad, he, yeah, my, my dad's an artist and my mum's an artist. So they didn't want me to be a doctor at all. That was the last thing they wanted me to be, you know. And so um, he said to me, he said to me, mate, do whatever you want. Just, mm. just, just don't sell smack. <laughs> And I'm, yeah, good. I'll just, yeah, right? That's when, you know, the Vietnamese were turning up to Cabramatta selling smack. And he's going, don't sell smack. I'm going, yeah, all right. I'll just take it. Anyway, so, um, <laughs> but, but, you know, he's such a, he's just high up there. He's just so, he's, you know, I'm just, I'm a comedian, you know, we're down here, you know, like you know, poets are even, you know, more than us. So, um, and, <laughs> And, you know, when, when, when I went overseas uh, with, with the string quartet to go play in uh, Adelaide Fe Edinburgh Festival and stuff, my dad would tell his friends, oh, Hung's, uh, he's gone to London to play for, with the London Philharmonic. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm on the street in Covent Garden, you know. <laughs> but, yeah, he, he, didn't, he just let me do whatever I want. He really didn't want me to be a pharmacist at all. <laughs> so... John, how did your, your father's parenting influence your own parenting as a father? Oh, oh, look, I, I often um, measure myself against Dad and, and find myself dreadfully wanting and lacking. Um, it's, uh, you know, that's probably a common experience of, of people with good parents. Um, I try, I'm a bit like Hongstad actually, I, I just... I try to just let my kids walk their own path because they're two very different kids. My, my, my daughter, Anna, is a, a machine for grinding out academic work. She's just, she's terrifying. Um, my son, not so much. Uh, <laughs> but he is, he's, he's artistic. He's very, very musical and, and I'm not. Uh, I, 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 you know, you could take a handle and hammer it into a musical note and, and like put a trolley underneath and I still can't carry that thing. But Thomas, he taught himself to play piano because he was getting a bit bored with the other instruments he was playing and, and you know, as he just got better and better at, at music and you know, not so good at imitating his sister's study habits. Uh, I just thought, you know what, kid, this is obviously your path. And my own parents, both dad and mum, who must have looked at me through my 20s when, you know, I was just living that falafel lifestyle and not really going anywhere. 
and they they knew I wanted to write, and and Dad in particular just you know he used to read some of my school essays. He go and he was dyslexic, um, and he used to go, oh, you, you seem to be pretty good at this. Like if you like doing it, you should probably do it. And you know, I, I take that and just apply it to my own son because I just figure whatever he does, he's got to do it for another 60 or 70 years. So he should probably enjoy it. It should be his thing, not mine. What about you, Caro? I mean, as a single mum, how did your dad's parenting or fathering influence the way that you brought up your son? I think Jack would say um, to you, and Jack is my son, who's now 30 um, and uh, still my baby, um, he would say that I was very, I was terrified. I was terrified that something would happen to Jack. And I think my father put that in us. I think he was so concerned to keep us safe um, that he was always saying to us, you know, be careful, don't do that, be careful, don't climb that thing. And weirdly, I'm the most reckless person that you will ever meet. But I, I just wanted to control my son and I think um, – and just make sure that he was safe. So I was just always terrified for him. And I think that that was constricting for him, to be honest. And I think it's been uh, taken him a long while to bust out of from that and for me to stop being that person with him, that kind of a parent with him, and just try to take a leaf out of your book and your father's book is just to say – He's going to be okay. I have to let him go. He's 30 years old. He's six foot four. <laughs> He's bald and he lives across the other side of the world. So it's about time I let him go. Um, and uh, But it is, it is, I think that was really drilled into me that just be careful because there was the example of my father that your life can go sideways in a moment and, um, and that it is something very precious and that we should be very careful with and I think we should be careful with our lives and I think we take a lot for granted. Um, but that's not a way to bring up a kid. I think I think giving children that freedom to be, I think Jack would say he's been allowed to able to be what he wanted to be and be musical and be creative and all of those things. Um, but that just that caution that I was always just trying to hang on to him, I think wasn't wasn't the best thing. Now we all see our fathers as kind of the strongest and the biggest and the bravest and the bestest heroes when we're children. And, and I, I get that impression from all, you know, especially you and Hung talking about your dads. But when did you first see your dad as a kind of human being like you, you know, with flaws and frees and frailties like your own? How did that affect the way you related to him or, or imagined him, John? Um, look, it was pretty late, actually. It was, uh, it was probably when he got sick. And I started to see him have just have trouble moving through the world because he was sick for a long time. He had a, a an angiosarcoma that took about six or seven years to kill him. Um, and I, you know, I was used to thinking of Dad as you know that that strong character, internally strong as as well as physically so, and because he was a he was a machinist and um, this very practical man, very handy. Um, you know, he, he, he built big things. He built drag lines that just, you know, tore up the face of the planet. And it was almost, you know, I could imagine him doing that. And then all of a sudden he told me one day, so, you know, you know a bit of a bad diagnosis with this thing. And, and 
I think it really... He didn't want to admit that this thing was going to get the better of him. Like, even when he was in the palliative care ward and it was obvious he wasn't coming out again, he was still talking about, oh, you know, I've got to get home and fix that dripping tap. And <laughs> and he refused. I went and got him a, a, a walking cane at one point, which he refused to use because, you know, he's, he's not going to use a cane. He doesn't need that yet. But I, I caught him. He used to golf. And uh, I, I caught him getting around the house with his three iron. Like... <laughs> as a cane, and, but it was his three iron, so it wasn't actually a cane. Uh, and that, I think that was, that was the first time I sort of, you know, realised it was going to get him and there was, there was no escaping it. For you, Hunger, it was a, a bit different because he, your dad, his diagnosis seemed to be pretty quick. Yeah. How did you feel at the moment that you realised, you know, this... Um, yeah, my, my, my dad got, um, I think, liver cancer. And and the thing is that lots of Vietnamese men have it because f- from the war. Like, I'd go to the, 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 um, the Melbourne Royal Hospital and when, when they're doing uh, chemo and stuff, the place is full of Vietnamese men, right? And all the nurses go, oh, man, I wish I speak Vietnamese. Cause, you know, she, because uh, I think it's the war and I don't know. I don't know what it is. Lots of bullets and inside your blood and the blood transfusions and all this sort of stuff. So, yeah, I don't know why. But um, <clears throat> what's the question? Man, <laughs> <laughs> I just go off on that tangent, don't I? Oh, yeah. What? How'd you feel? How did I... You know, it was, it oh, was a very yeah, yeah, sudden yeah, yeah, yeah. kind of diagnosis, wasn't it, in comparison? I'm a bit of a jinx on the family, right? The thing is that every time I go on tour... Every time I come back, somebody would die in the house, right? <laughs> so the first time I come back, I'll go on tour for ages, come back, and grandma died. And I go, oh, God. So then I'll go on tour again, come back, grandpa died. And then I'll go on tour, and then I'll come home, and the dad's really sick, right? And I go, man, why didn't you tell me you were sick? He go, mate, I, don't, I didn't want you to come back. I didn't want to die, you know? So... <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, he, he never told me, man. So, um, but he was always, he was a very confident man, you know. Like he's, just, he's had this aura around him where people just, he just attracts people. And every time he talks, it's just gold that comes out of his mouth. And, and, and he's a very, very confident man. Even when he was sick, he never, he never showed that he was sick. He can look like, he, you know, I'd take him to, I'd take him to get chemo and then and I'd pick him up and we'd go get some noodles in Footscray. And he, but he never, never showed that he was sick. He was always, always very strong sort of bloke, you know. So, yeah, he, he, he never told me anything. So, and we're Asian blokes. We don't really talk to each other. He never told me how sick he was or anything. So um, that's the, the answer. <laughs> how did you feel about him not telling you? Ah, yeah, it's 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 really hard to 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 get emotions out of Asian blokes, say, hey? and it's it's sad. It's really sad. I, I I couldn't really ask him any questions about you know. He, I knew you know he's gonna die, but I, yeah, we couldn't really get emotionally you know down because you know because the Asian blokes are very tough and don't say anything. What do you wish you could or could have asked him? Before he died, um, cover the car. Because <laughs> <laughs> he never thought he was going to die, you know. He never, 
He never rode a wheel, didn't do anything, you know. So, yeah, yeah. But he's got this... It's very philosophical dude, my dad, right? It's just gold that comes out. It's like Confucius every time he opens his mouth, right? And so I went back to Vietnam and I talked I talk to all his friends, all, all, the, all the professors that used to, um, they, they, you know, at, at the university, they used to work together. And I asked his friends, what was dad like? What's his philosophy? And his friends come out <coughs> with this. He goes, this is your dad's philosophy on art and life. He said, work like you're crazy, play until you're satisfied. And then I've lived my life like that all, all this time until now. What was the best bit of oh well you what that was, was it. the best bit of advice your dad gave you, Caro? Um, I think my father gave me great advice, and actually my book is really about the fact that I couldn't really come to terms with his advice when I got sick. So m- my father was just never an angry person, even though you know he was struck down in the prime of his life, um, and uh, he was just, he always said that polio was the best thing that happened to him. And yet when I got sick, all I could think of was this is the worst thing that could possibly happen to me. And I um, I had none of the grace that he had. He was incredibly, um, just lived a very full, happy life. And like I say, said polio was the best thing that happened to him. When he got sick, he said, well, why not me? And all I could think of was why me? You know, like, this is so unfair. I've lived through his illness and now I'm, you know, the doctor's standing at the end of my bed in New York City wearing a bow tie, which was equally doubly annoying, um, <laughs> and telling me that, asking me whether I lived in a house with steps. And I thought, I know what that question means. And um, and I was the opposite of graceful. I was very angry and very... Um, I felt really betrayed. I felt betrayed because this was never meant to happen to me. And also my father had always said, I'm your fall guy. You guys can live big, you know, robust, rambunctious lives and because nothing physically will ever happen to you. And not that, you know, we wouldn't have heartbreak or disappointments or any other calamities that come upon a person, but that we would physically be okay. So I had this double thing of, like, this can't be possibly be my life because I've lived my life like a crazy person and nothing has ever happened to me so far and also well that can't be true that can't be happening to me because my father said it would never happen to me so how could how could you be telling me that this is he was my fall guy and I believed him so there was this double-edged sword of it it was really about the fact that I had just taken for granted and really and truly believed my father when he said I'm your fall guy do you reckon your dad took a while to get to that grace though like you know would he have been like you when he got the polio? You know, I, I don't think so because he was in an iron lung and during that time he seduced my mother. So <laughs> I think he had other things on his mind. To be and John, it's a really good question because I used to ask him this all the time. I'd say to him, I can't believe that you – this was long before I got sick. He, was, he died before I got sick, thank God. Um, but he, I would always say to him, weren't you angry? Weren't you mad? And he always said no, and I ended up having to believe him. Um, and seriously, within six months of being in an iron lung, he had met my mother, who was his nurse, seduced her, and <laughs> off they went. So, yeah, he, he, he had, he had other things. Yeah. I think he knew that he had two choices. He could either be angry and he would end up probably alone and bitter and all of those things, or he could get smart and be positive and think that he was going to build himself a life, which he did. 
um, at a time when it was very hard to build a life when you were 95% paralysed in the 1950s and early 60s. Mm. And because you were just meant to go into the home of incurables, um, which is where he was set to go until he met my mother. So why don't we hear a little bit from your book, mm. Caro, about your dad. Um, this is your dad as you knew him. So I've, I've chose this, um, again, this is another really hard um, photo for me and I feel really bad because Dad would have hated for everybody to see this photo because it really did, sh I think it shows just how really disabled he was. So this was in America, we were in America and that's my stepmom and her two brothers, Ned and, um, and Jim. And uh, Dad went in the pool. And so this, I'm just going to read a little section um, about this trip and us being in the swimming pool and Dad being in the swimming pool. So we're in Tucson. Becky's parents had a pool. Becky encouraged my father to go in. She made him some shorts on her mother's sewing machine. Shorts were not something he'd worn since he was struck by Polly on account of his self-consciousness about his strange-looking stick-like legs. They really were strange. But Becky was convincing and her three brothers agreed to help. They lifted him out of his chair, carried him down the steps of the shallow end and lowered him into the water. In my mind, I'd outgrown my father by the time I was 10, but in truth he was six foot two and it took all, of, all three of Becky's brothers to carry him in. It was an act of love, like a baptism or saving a beached whale. It was beautiful for him to float, to feel weightless after the constriction of the chair, and I got to go swimming with my father. I never knew how it was that he could float as perfectly as a blow-up mattress, but now I see he had a floating device. I really hadn't put that together until I saw this photo getting ready for this reading. But anyway, so um, I thought he just could float like a blow-up mattress. But his body always stayed flat on the water's surface. My brother and I dive-bombed around him, trying to flip him over to, or make him sink. He never sank, but occasionally one of us bombed hard enough and close enough to make the waves roll him over face down. Charming children. <laughs> <laughs> Being underwater didn't scare him after his training as a naval diver, and he always came up laughing when we turned him onto his back. I pedalled my legs hard underneath the blue surface to get high enough out of the water to wipe the puddles out of his blinking eyes. Then I'd swim off to do more handstands in the shallow end while he floated on the surface. One particularly hot day, they carried my father into the pool and I swam down to sit on the bottom to look up at his funny weightless body floating above me against the blue sky. He looked like Humpty Dumpty in a blue flotation tank, not quite as round as Humpty Dumpty, but his legs just as long and thin. When I came up for air, Becky's mum announced a fresh, fresh batch of homemade, homemade ice cream. I clambered out of the pool and ran inside. It was the best ice cream I'd ever tasted. My swimsuit was dripping puddles on the kitchen floor, so I was sent back outside, sucking the last of the strawberry cream from the bottom of the frosted cone, ready to dive bomb my father again and tell him how delicious the homemade stuff was. I pushed open the back door dropped the, remaining of the, cone, the remains of the cone on the hot concrete and started running. My father was face down in the water. My uncles were sitting at a picnic table with their backs to the pool and in my enthusiasm for the ice cream, I'd failed to tell them to turn around and watch him. When they heaved him out of the water, he was very shaken, gasping for breath. He kept telling me that he was okay and tried to ease my guilt by saying his diving training helped him stay calm. He never blamed me, but I blamed myself. 
And the punishment for my stupidity was that I never got to go swimming with my father again. Now, Cara, you did say before, you know, even though you thought your father could never leave you, you know, even though, and even though you thought you'd outgrown him, he was so big still physically. But despite being such a large part of your life, you became estranged. Why was that and, and how did you reconcile? So, um, so my parents, my mother was an absolute pioneer. Like I say, she met him in the Iron Lung and decided to marry him. And, uh, but there, I think the strain of that time when there were no, there was no carers, there was no electric wheelchairs, everything was manual. It was a very, very hard life and she, we had, they had two, my brother and me. And, um, and I think the strain just got too much. So that in the end, their marriage dissolved, but she couldn't leave because he would end up in the home for incurables. So she stuck around, but it was pretty miserable until a lovely young American woman turned up and she became my carer while my mother went away on an art buying trip because they'd opened an art gallery by this stage. And uh, he seduced her as well. So <laughs> they left. <laughs> he was very charming. They left and, um, and even though it was what had been what my mother had wanted all along, this was her freedom, her saviour in knee-high boots and a poncho, and uh, yet when the, when the reality struck home, it what didn't end that well. So I got caught up in the mix of it. So uh, my dad and Becky left and eventually I got called into the, into the throngs of, their, of, the, of a very, very messy divorce. And how did you reconcile with your dad after that? Um, after some time, uh, I just decided to just turn up at the house one day and I just walked past, there's a scene in the book where I talk about, I used to walk past, he, they lived at the front on, uh, at Henley Beach, I don't know if people know South Australia, but it's right on the, he's right on the water. And so I used to walk up and down the beach thinking maybe he'll be out on the deck and then if he'll whistle to me, then I'll be able to say to my mother that it would just, it just happened, you know, it wasn't me. But anyway, one day I just decided... It was about time and I just went and knocked on the door. And what happened? What, how, what happened that moment that you'd see, you saw him for the first time? You'd made that knock on the door. Um, I met my little brother um, who was about three by that stage and, um, and I hadn't seen my father for about five years and I just remembered thinking that I wanted him to like me. And I was very, very nervous. You know, my mother was had always threatened that she would kill herself if I went and saw him. So there was a, quite a lot riding on it. So I was pretty, I was, you know, 15 or something and pretty, was, it was a hard moment, but I'm very glad I did it. John, you write so movingly and admiringly of your father. But did you ever clash with him? Did you ever have a blue? Was there any moment where you and your dad kind of didn't see eye to eye? <laughs> and how did you resolve it? Um, the underarm bowling incident. <laughs> uh, where Greg Chappell instructed Trevor Chappell to bowl the last ball of the six ball over against New Zealand. Um, and along the ground, so he couldn't loft it for six, which is what New Zealand needed to tie the game. Not even a win, just a tie. And uh, I saw that. It was within the rules. It was a legitimate move. My father, who was much more interested in the spirit of the game, <laughs> did not agree. And we had quite a set to about that. 
and, and we could fall back into that disagreement decades later. Hung, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we, we talk about um, respect that a lot of Asian children are expected to show their parents. Did you and your dad ever clash? Oh, man. Yeah, constantly, constantly. I was, I was, I was, I was a rebel. You know, everything I did was wrong. You know, and it was great, great to have a dad. You know, a good thing about a good father is someone who will pay for all the damage that <laughs> <laughs> without car insurance. You know, you you don't have car. Yeah, so I I crash. Yeah, I we 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 crash all the time. But um, he just gave up. Yeah, he just gave up. Just let me do whatever I want and and, and pay for the damage. Yeah. All of you, um, ha- your father's deaths, all of you, your fathers died um, and, and their passing did affect you, you know, and you do write about it really movingly in your books. How has it kind of um, prepared you for the passing of your mothers? And, and is it possible to be prepared for the inevitable heartbreaks of life, like losing our parents, Kara? I think that's, for me, that's a little bit too complex of a question to answer here because it's complicated. Um, But uh, the wonderful thing that we did recently, a couple of weeks ago, um, so my father died and when he died, his only wish was that he would be put out to sea. He was cremated and that we would put him out to sea. Anyway, 15 years later, he was still in a box. (laughs) And he was in a box outside my, my, my stepmom and her new husband's bedroom. And so... I had found this a great, great upset and a couple of times I went home and I got drunk and I sat out the front with Dad. I got him out of the box and I sat and said that if I was a braver person I would just go and let him loose into the sea. Anyway, finally the family came around and two weeks ago I, with my little sister, we paddled my dad out into the ocean and let him go. So that was a very nice thing. So I think that's, that's my – the other one's too complicated but that was a really great moment – and in true Llewellyn Madness style, Becky and all of us had decided that we should put him out to sea with some food. So we were throwing my father out and the wind's blowing, of course, and I'm on a kayak, which is hilarious, with a walking stick. And, uh, and his dad's blowing all over me and then we've got pickled onions going out into the, <laughs> into the ocean and some rye bread and all sorts of other things. Anyway... It was a very funny but very, very special moment to put him back. What about you, Hung? How did you, you mentioned your dad never thought he was going to die. How did you seeing your dad pass away make you reflect, I guess, on how you'll come to terms with your own passing or your mother's passing? Um, I really wish that the hospital would would have sat us down and give us talk to us about it you know and give us this is how you're going to be feeling because you know the hospital they see death all the time and they didn't do anything like this for us and i really really wish they would sit you down and say this is these are the things you're going to be feeling and yeah and so you know we we, and and when he died it just it all came out you know so I, i didn't know how to feel and so, yeah, so we're really scared that well, when mum's going to pass. Because, you know, in, in Vietnamese society, the women run the whole thing. It's a, you know, it's a magical society that 
Yeah, women are the women are uh, are the ones who who run the whole family, who run everything because men kept going off to war all the time. There's nobody at home running anything. So we all look up to you know when grandma died, it was really sad. So yeah, we we're still at home, all of us. We're still at home, and mum's still there. So you know, yeah, I, I don't know. We we don't know how to feel, man. I I I'm just mm. waiting, just waiting. I'm just still driving at at noodles now. <laughs> well, I mean, John, your book on father is as much about your father as about you coming to terms mm. with the loss of your father. Um, would you like to read us a little bit from the book? Yeah, I, it's, it's, you know, in, a lot of the book was about me grieving and, and basically falling into a six-month depression after he passed. Um, and I'm not going to read that bit because, you know, it's Sunday, people got better things to do. So I... I had one, uh, there was one story in here that, that I tell for a reason, which I won't go into here, but it, it's a lovely story. And so I'm gonna, I used to be a cricket writer. I used to work for Inside Sport and um, South African Cricket Action and uh, <laughs> Wisdom. I actually worked for them for a bit too, which was awesome. But I was mostly accredited to the ACB, as it was in those days, the Australian Cricket Board. I'll read this next bit. Uh, to be accredited by the ACB, as it was then, was to float above the workaday freelancers who grubbed along from gig to gig, filing copy for mags like Inside Sport or its stablemates, Penthouse and Australian Women's Forum. Alone, full disclosure time, I filed plenty for both and was once offered 50 bucks by Forum to pose naked, <laughs> save for a Roman gladiator helmet with a full face mask. I did not float too far above the riffraff then. One year, I managed to pull off the sort of peak freelance scam that makes up for the lack of stable employment, superannuation, sick leave, and holiday pay. I managed to get accredited twice, once by the ACB and again by the New South Wales Cricket Board. So I had two press passes and I did not let them go to waste. I suggested to Dad we should both cover the test match at the SCG, and to my astonishment, he agreed. Normally, Dad was a sort of tirelessly honest rube who would query a tax bill twice just to make sure he did not owe some more. <laughs> but he was not at all concerned by the propriety of passing himself off as a certified cricket correspondent. After all, the pass I offered him was accredited to John Birmingham, and that was his name too, was it not? <laughs> he could not be held responsible for the administrative incompetence of others. And he did love the cricket. We repaired to the press box in good order, where he rubbed elbows and drank the Nine Networks beers with Dougie Walters and sundry old geezers while I attended to my coverage. Being a magazine writer who might file one or two long pieces a summer that meant hitting the beer fridge and necking as much lunch as possible before the poor bastards with the daily deadlines hurried into the lounge to see how much of the complimentary buffet remained. Not much. <laughs> the late Peter Roebuck, Fairfax cricket writer, was, as I recall, volcanically angry to discover there was no more curry. <laughs> Dad and I had finished that off. And we sank lower into our unpaid-for seats 
polishing off a couple of crownies while Roebuck raged at the intolerable perfidy of lazy fucking freeloaders. <laughs> I'm sure he meant freelancers. <laughs> it was a perfect day, and I would recall it fondly years later. I reminded Dad of it while he lay abed in palliative care, and he smiled. For a man who led a blameless life, it was one bite of sweet forbidden fruit he would indulge himself to remember. Such a beautiful story. And, and just before we go to questions, tell me, Hung, what's your favourite memory of your time with your dad? What's your favourite memory that crystallises everything about your dad for you? Favourite memory? When he gave me the car? Uh, <laughs> Um, he was the man. Like um, I didn't know how. When 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 we were on the on on the boat, right? And and the, the Americans picked us up, and we were in this uh, uh, all, all these massive ships that you know, the American Navy had that when they picked up refugees, and we're sitting on the ground, and we're on the way to Subic Bay. And um, we all had, all they cooked for us was congee, right? And so uh, they didn't know how to cook anything else. So we, and, and we hadn't eaten anything for so long, so the only thing we could keep down was congee. And so we were all sitting, all these refugees are sitting on the ground in these battleships. And the guy next to us, somehow, I'm going, what's that smell? What's that smell? And the guy next to us had a packet of two-minute noodle. Somehow he got some hot water. Right? And he's cooking himself two-minute noodle. I'm, I'm just like, what is that smell? Oh, my God. I'm, I'm drooling watching this man eat the two-minute noodle. And so my dad saw him, me drooling. So he got out a piece of paper and a pencil and he started sketching whatever he saw. And he gave it to the man. And the man gave me the soup of his two-minute noodles. And I, I'm still, I go around the world trying to find this smell uh, and uh, I still can't do it. And it's it's just a, it's it's good to see that art can get you stuff, you know. <laughs> oh. yeah, I don't know about now, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, when I was at school, I did art art prac at school. I'm the worst art. Pra- and so I need, I failed form five art, and my dad's going, "Oh my god!" So he, he goes into the shed, and he and he whacks up this painting, and he goes, "Sign it." I'm going, <laughs> <laughs> took it to school, gave it to the art teacher, got an A. <laughs> you know, it's that sort of stuff. He just gets me out of out, out of situation with art. It's beautiful, you know. <laughs> what about you, Caro? What's what's one perfect memory of your dad? Um, I used to particularly like um spitting watermelon pips with him and it was a competition that we would have and he would be in his chair and he was pathetic he was just he had no puff and so we used to play this game and I was really good I could spit for miles but we used to play this game and I would let him win most of the time but then he would catch on that I was just being letting him win and he would demand so I would beat him substantially I could spit for miles and he would be these little things anyway so yes that was that was fun strange fun but yes and reading my father read to me a lot and he read me a book called the happy prince 
um, by Oscar Wilde and that was a book that I can I think he must have known it off by heart and so he would I, we would sit up in bed and he would he would read and I would turn the pages and jiggle up and down so that he would lose his place but he never did anyway yeah he was very patient when it came to me well also <laughs> when we got our first <laughs> rental house right in, in, in Coburg so, so we go and rent the housing commission house, okay? And the 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 line, the queue for the housing uh, housing commission house was twenty years, right? So we couldn't wait twenty years. So my dad he wakes up these massive paintings, two massive paintings, wakes it up, and he goes, "Well, carry them." I was fifteen years old. He goes, "Well, carry them down to the office of the housing commission in Coburg," and he says, "Give me a house, you can have these two. And the dude behind, the, yeah, the dude who's just working behind the thing is going, "You." beauty <laughs> and we jumped the queue 20 years <laughs> queue jumpers from way back well I think it was Loyalis who said show me the child and I'll show you the father of the man and for many of us those fathers whether they were present or absent left a lasting impression they may not have necessarily left us with beautiful art or long-standing memories or any kind of lesson. And I know that as a father myself, even though I was very nervous before I came, became a father, that really there wasn't much I could leave my children, especially as a freelance writer. <laughs> but I guess while Philip Larkin might have said that they fuck you up, your mum and dad, they don't mean to, but they do, that even if I didn't fuck my kids up too much, the best thing I could leave them and the thing I hoped would survive of me and all of us is love. Ladies and gentlemen, please thank John, Caro and Hung. Thank you, Sunil. Thanks, Sunil. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. This session was recorded live as part of Byron Mitis Festival 2019. You can find other recorded talks and discussions from the festival on our website, byronmitersfestival.com. Mm-hmm.